Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Diana Brainerd. She's the CEO of Waltham, Massachusetts-based Alavir. Alavir is developing off-the-shelf T-cell therapies to fight common viruses. The company is developing these T-cells, derived from donors, and modifying them so they can be given to patients with weakened immune systems. The company's lead T-cell therapy candidate is made to fight six common viruses, including adenovirus, Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, JC virus, and more. If Alavir is successful, these T-cells will first be used in patients who undergo stem cell transplant therapy, which is a common form of treatment for certain leukemias and lymphomas. This virus-fighting T-cell infusion should also be practical to be made available at a lower cost than the well-known T-cell therapies designed to fight cancer. Diana started her career as a physician scientist at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, but that was only her start. She comes to this new challenge at Alavir after a long and distinguished track record developing drugs for common infectious diseases. She worked for a decade at Gilead Sciences and was intimately involved in development of the cures for hepatitis C, marketed under the names Sovaldi, Harvoni, and Epclusa. By the end of her 10-year tenure, she was Senior Vice President of Infectious Disease at Gilead, overseeing the company's HIV portfolio, among other things. At the end, she led the frenzied all-hands-on-deck work on remdesivir, a treatment that still remains effective for hospitalized patients with COVID-19. In this episode, we talk about Diana's roots in the humanities, how storytelling influenced her approach to patient care, and how a coach helped her grow from a strong individual performer into an organizational leader. And a little side note. Before this interview, I had only spoken to Diana once before, but I felt like I knew her in some ways already. She is married to TR health tech columnist David Shaywitz, who, I would say, to borrow a phrase from the author E.B. White, is both a good friend and a great writer. Now please join me and Diana Brainerd on The Long Run. Diana Brainerd, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. Great to be here. Well, I'm really excited to dive into this work that you're doing for infectious disease. I think it's a novel strategy. We, I've not had someone on the show who is approaching uh, multiple infectious diseases in quite the same way. Uh, so really excited to hear more about Alavir. But let's just start off with a little bit about you um, and uh, who you are and how you got here. So Diana, where are you from originally? I grew up in Connecticut, Luke, uh, on the East Coast. And uh, what kind of environment was this? A small town or one of the larger cities? Uh, I grew up in a suburb of New York City in Fairfield County and um, no no medical degrees in my family or a history of connection to medicine. But um, that's kind of the the path that I landed on, uh, not necessarily since uh, from the early days, but, you know, got through high school and, and college, kind of enjoying a range of classes and moving through different career possibilities, but but landing on medicine and thinking maybe I'd be a 
small town doctor, but then quickly pivoting to infectious diseases. It was this. Well, let, let, let's yeah. get there in a, in a, in a bit. Let's, <laughs> let's back up just a little here. Uh, what did your parents do for a living? Um, so my dad worked on Wall Street. He was a trader, um, a bond trader primarily. And my mom was an editor at a, a trade magazine called Publishers Weekly. Okay, so you had some exposure to the world of business and humanities in your That's household. Right. Yeah. Um, well, um, and do you have any siblings? I do. I, I'm the oldest. I have a younger sister and a younger brother, and neither of them are doing medicine either. So I'm on my own. Uh huh. Uh huh. And what kind of schools did you attend there in Fairfield? So I went to um, a public school through um, the first year of high school, and then I left the uh, public high school and went to boarding school in uh, the northwest corner of Connecticut. Oh, wow. So why did you do that? Um, you know, it, it was not uncommon in the town that I grew up in, Darien, to go to boarding school. I had cousins who had done that. And to be honest, I was sort of, I was a little bored. I was, um, school was fine, but it was not fun. Um, and my friends had been my friends since elementary school. And again, they were great, but it was kind of like the same old thing, day in, day out, same weekend routine. Um, and I, kind of felt like I was looking for something new to mix it up. A little more challenging, perhaps? I, you know, I don't think I thought of it in that context, but I think you're right. I think that's what I was looking for, even though I, I didn't know that that's what I wanted. Hmm. So what was the environment like at this boarding school? Well, it was um, uh, it was a lot more challenging academically. It was a wonderful place to be a student, really dedicated teachers. Um, I mean, not every single one, but but I, I still uh, feel like I got a lot of inspiration from uh, teachers across the board. Some of my uh, biology teacher, chemistry teacher, my English teacher was life-changing. Um, and it was also a great place to interact with adults in a different way. I'd always seen adults as being sort of, uh, you know, almost like a different species and having very little to offer uh, me as an all-knowing teenager. And, um, but but at boarding school where, you know, we had uh, people living in the dorms with us and um, there was a much closer relationship with teachers, I, I started to actually um, be able to hear and listen to some of the wisdom and um, appreciate uh, um, the, you know, the older people, which I think is important important and uh, maturity level. Um, and I, that's also where I picked up squash, which, you know, was a, a, a big part of my life for a while. I played in college and um, uh, so, so overall, and, and made some amazing friends too. So overall, it was a very positive experience. Was this a co-ed school or girls only? It was co-ed, Hotchkiss. Okay. But you, you were more challenged and it sounds like you really began to thrive academically, athletically, socially. Um, you mentioned that the English teacher was life-changing. What? How so? Well, um, you know, he, he was uh, the type of person that really um, knew how to uh, speak to a broad range of people and appreciate a broad range of people. So he was the boys hockey coach. He was also the um, assistant football coach. 
Um, and so, and he had a real connection to like the sort of guys, guys, and they all loved him. Um, but at the same time, he was um, this amazing uh, English teacher um, that he was just like adulated by his students. And he would often see sort of like the, the quietest, most, um, I don't know, maybe like people on the periphery, he would see them and bring them in. And, and that was, um, that was a, a really wonderful aspect of him, how inclusive he could make everybody feel and how that would sort of foster connections between different groups of people. And I, I think also the subject matter that we covered in junior year, um, uh, you know, reading Thoreau and Emerson and that that really spoke to me. And sort of for the first time, I felt like what I was reading was connected to something that I could relate to in school. Um, and um, this idea of, you know, being independent and being connected to nature and um, sort of giving me a, a like a, a literary framework for trying to become my own person. Um, that was that was um, really terrific. Hmm. So now I think in college you went on to study literature. So did did this class help inspire you to, you know, continue diving into the, the great books and their universal themes? I mean, it did. I didn't. I So I went to Brown and I didn't know going in that I was going to do a you know humanities major. I, I sort of kept an open mind, which is, you know, one of the great things about Brown is you can take any class you want, um, any class you want for pass fail. And I took a wide range, but I really did love the smaller uh, literature classes I was doing and just decided to focus on comparative literature, French and English. And um and I and I I think that I saw my future as being in the academic world, maybe as a as a professor someday. But I think what I really liked is I just really love reading. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, were was there any pushback in the family or culturally that geez, you know, being a, a literature major, uh, it's kind of hard to get a job doing that. <laughs> At least that's how people would commonly perceive it today with the humanities kind of being under attack uh budgetarily um did did you feel any of that i didn't really i mean i think my parents were always very you know kind of supportive of me doing what made sense to me and i think having a having a um humanities major didn't seem unusual for for them. I mean, my mom was an English major in college. And um, I think also, you know, it was 19, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And I, I think, you know, for them, the stereotype for what's expected for women is also it was a girls was a little bit different, right? Like, I think if I had said, like, oh, I don't really know if I want to work in my life, I think that probably would have been okay. Um, so maybe the expectations were lower, but, but also I would say their parenting style was like, you know, we trust you, you have a track record of doing things well. And, um, you know, you tell us what you need from us. Interesting. So you, you study comparative literature at Brown. Uh, and now today you're a biotech CEO probably couldn't have imagined it when you were, I don't know, 20, <laughs> but I couldn't um, have imagined it when I was 40, 40 or 45. <laughs> To be honest. <laughs> well, but looking back, do you think it was worthwhile to study the humanities? And and if so, why? 
Well, yes. I mean, I think absolutely. I, I, I think honestly, any, um, and this is one of the kind of takeaways that I feel like I've learned from my life and try to impart to people who come and, and ask me for advice is to say there is no single path to success, to fulfillment, to happiness, to any job. The, the important thing is to take whatever you have in front of you and do it really well and, and get really into it and learn it and um, figure out what you like and what you don't like and why, and then that, let that guide your next step. And so for me, uh, you know, I think the things that I learned in, in those the literature classes and a lot of the writing and the lit theory was just around how to think and how to express my ideas in a coherent and compelling way. And I think honestly, that's a really hard skill and it's not super common among um, in the world of, of scientists. Uh, and I think it's a real advantage in my job and has been for a while, just that that ability to kind of think methodically and then and then express myself through writing and also through speaking in a in a coherent fashion. Interesting. So at what point did you make this transition over to biology and medicine? Yeah, well, I was um, doing my junior year abroad in France and living in Lyon um, because I didn't, I wanted to be really like truly immersed um, in the French cultural and language experience and didn't think I could get that as easily in Paris because it's so international, even though it's such a beautiful city. Um, so I was in Lyon, I was at a university there, Lyon 2, and I was taking all literature, uh, lit theory classes. And uh, that was the first time, even when I was at Brown and declared my major, I still took a range of classes. And I think I, it sort of dawned on me like, wow, this would be my life if this is what I do. If I go to grad school and get a PhD, this is this is what it's going to be like. And I, I actually got kind of turned off by it because it was so insular to me. It felt very insular to me to be just thinking about, um, these like critical theory uh, coming up with like the path to success was coming up with an idea, finding evidence and then presenting it in kind of like a sexy way to your professor thinking through like, what do they like? Where's their perspective? What arguments are they going to like best? And it, it felt really removed from the real world. And, you know, of course I was at Brown, I was young, I'm an idealist, I'm, you know, like a member of PETA um, at that time, not currently. <laughs> um, so I, I, I just didn't feel like it was gonna be enough to sustain me um, uh, career-wise in terms of making the world a better place. Um, and so then I sort of was like, okay, well, what do I do now? And um, I, it was, really reading a lot of William Carlos Williams. That was one of the few um, English um, books that I had. Um, and um, I also had uh, uh, read Heirs of a General Practice by John McPhee. And so I thought, you know, like what I really love are stories and, you know, um, there's a lot of people's stories in medicine. I mean, that's that's a lot of what it's about is like listening to people's stories and understanding them. And um, so I thought about maybe becoming a physician and um, through a connection of my mom through Publishers Weekly, had a correspondence with Robert Coles, who is a physician at Harvard and does a lot of writing and also inspired by William Carlos Williams. And so I reached out to him through, you know, snail mail back in the day uh, from France. Uh, and he he was incredibly encouraging. I mean, it's a 
it's amazing that he even responded, but um, he encouraged me to to become a doctor and felt like there was there was a lot of a lot for somebody who um, was drawn to literature and reading and writing and people stories um, in medicine. Um, and uh, so that's I, I came back to Brown senior year and and decided, OK, I'm going to medical school. You know, hearing you describe medicine this way, it's um, <laughs> it, it sounds like something from a different era where yeah. you had the time to listen to the patient, listen carefully. What are they saying? What are they not saying? They're offering clues. In a way, they're, they're telling a story, but it's often a detective story. You, you don't have all the information. You got to figure yeah. out what's going on here before you can begin to adequately treat what what's going what what the patient has um you found that uh, really interesting and it dovetailed nicely off of your your literature background yeah that's right and i i, I you know i i feel like that is you know not everyone is is drawn to medicine for those reasons but i think that's a that's a pretty big draw for a lot of people and it's a beautiful beautiful thing to be in a position where you know you're allowed this intimacy with another person to really hear what's going on um with them physically you know psychologically socially um uh and it's I mean, it's it saddens me that that's less and less a part of the actual practice of medicine these days for a variety of reasons. And I, I know that's outside the scope of our. No, no, no. Podcast, but I mean, but what you're saying, it's not purely a technocratic role. Like, well, you know, I take a blood test and it says, you know, your IL-6 is elevated here. And so I'll give you, you know, <laughs> drug X. I mean, that, that there's a there's a bureaucratic element <laughs> yeah. to the work now, sadly, uh, yeah. that, that often misses a lot of the. <laughs> the great big messy stew of what's going on with patients and in a disease area. Yes. And I think also the the pleasure of being in the role, right? It's not just formulas and algorithms. That's that's not that's not the fun part. Well, okay. So you decide to go to medical school. <laughs> uh, and how did you um decide on what to specialize in there? Well, when I got to medical school and I went to Tulane in New Orleans, and so this was in the um, 90s, and it was right as the um, uh, first HIV medications were um, being used, but but it was still before combination therapy was really available or recognized to be necessary, and so there was a lot of a lot of AIDS. In fact, the the medical wards were full of people dying from AIDS. And, and because of uh, where New Orleans is, there's also um, a lot of tropical medicine there. So some really fascinating tropical diseases. And um, because of a confluence of medical and social issues in that city, there was also a ton of tuberculosis. And so I attended a grand rounds early in my freshman year of um, the head of infectious diseases there, Newton Heislip, presented a case of a pregnant woman who wound up having multi-drug resistant tuberculosis and HIV. And I mean, it was a it was a fascinating um, intertwining of the um these these medical diseases with one of them tuberculosis with this incredibly rich history through the ages and literature and whatnot and then this new disease that was you know changing the world in real time 
overlaid on, you know, a, a sociological structure that um, was really equally as important to out disease outcomes as the med medical problems. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is incredible. This is exactly what um, I need to be doing. And I attached myself to him um, and sort of initially shadowing him in the, in, on rounds and then doing research with him, um, hoping that, you know, this, this would be the path I would take. And, and, um, and then he had trained at, at, um, at Mass General and been on faculty there. So when it came time for me to apply for residencies, he, you know, I'd never even heard of Mass General. He said, oh, it's a small hospital in Boston. You should consider it. And um, <laughs> this is, uh, again, that detective story. Pa patient walks in complaining of some symptoms and, you know, uh, turns out they're, they've got HIV. Their immune system is weakened, disabled in a way. And they also have been exposed to that tuberculosis bacterium. And, and so now that thing takes root and becomes um, a bigger problem. Now you got two problems to, to deal with at once, in very different ways. So like you, you're thinking about the biology and the treating of the ultimate, the, of the patient. Uh, it, were you on that, kind of, did you get kind of quickly on that physician scientist track doing both? No, I mean, not really, Luke, because I, I I mean, I did start doing some like clinical research, which I think at the time I didn't even I didn't even really have an understanding that it was research. It was more like there's some really interesting questions here we need to answer. And yeah, that's called research. But at the time, I thought, well, I'll just try to help answer these questions, you know, just about like how, uh, you know, how common is it someone shows up in the um TB clinic and has TB and HIV. How common is it that someone shows up in the ER and has TB and or HIV? Those types of kind of epidemiologic um, questions. And then, but it was when I got to Mass General where, you know, it was like, we do research here. I'm like, what's that? Oh yeah, that's great. Let me, I want to do that. Um, I can do that. And that's, um, I, I think that's where that side of me really became more developed. Okay, so you dove into the the fundamentals of immunology, T cells, what they do um, at, at at MGH. Yes, I took a year off between um, residency and my infectious disease fellowship, and I worked with Bruce Walker, who's you know um, uh, one of the really great figures in HIV immunology. Did a lot of really seminal sort of translational meaning like clinical observations leading to um, bench uh, 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 research, leading to insights into the disease process for HIV. Um, and I was at that time very interested in um, we're doing research in Africa. And so he had started a collaboration over in Durban, South Africa, where there was a huge, um, you know, problem with HIV and, and AIDS. They had no access to medicines there. And so I went over and lived there for six months to help him set up the laboratory at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Um, and yeah, that was a that was an extraordinary experience. It was really fascinating. Um, from again many different angles. So you started as a as a postdoc and then made your way onto the faculty. Is that right? 
Yes, I went. So I did I did that year of research and then I sort of continued work on the side while I did my fellowship and then went back into the lab and then went on faculty. Uh huh. Uh huh. So what was uh, your research agenda just real briefly uh, when you were on faculty? Yeah, so I was um, still interested in HIV immunology and specifically um, cell trafficking. Um, so how T cells, you know, move around the body? How do they know where to go? This is very dysregulated in HIV. Looking at, you know, where what types of T cells are in the lymph nodes where HIV is replicating? What cells are excluded and why are they excluded from those sites? And comparing that at different stages of of HIV disease, early infection, um, very late stage infection, um, different viral loads. So how much is this impacted by the virus that's circulating? And also looking in in people. There are some people, these elite controllers who control HIV on their own. And how does how does their body and their cells look differently from people who the majority of people who can't control HIV? This sounds like a, a fascinating line of basic immunology inquiry. You could probably have spent your entire career doing this. Yes. And I think I, I think I would have been very happy. I mean, it was a great environment, um, very supportive. Um and I really enjoyed it. I, I did. I did some mouse work as well with a humanized mouse model. And I, I, I never thought I would be working with animals. Like I mentioned, I'd been a PETA member at one point. And, but, but I actually really, I, I, you know, I, I felt like what I was doing was worthwhile. And I really enjoyed the surgical manipulations that we were doing to create these humanized mice and just all of the details. I, I'm a very organized, structured person, and I found that that. Um, lent itself very well to being in the lab and um, sort of planning things out, then executing on them, then looking at the data, then going back. Um, I, I found it um, really gratifying. Were you, still, <laughs> were you still treating patients in these years, like one or two days a week? Yeah. So I still had my clinic every week. And then uh, I would do, this is a very standard academic approach, my time on service where I'd be an attending in the hospital, um, supervising fellows, you know, on a, on a team. Okay. Okay. So you really are uh, the physician and scientist uh, wearing both hats or juggling things and seeing how these things interact, ideally. Yes. Uh, now, now you're there for a while and then you make the move to industry. What was that about? Why did you do that? <laughs> Well, you know, as with all things, it's, it was multifactorial. I think, you know, what, what hasn't come into it is this my the personal side of my life, which is, is you know, more even more important than the career side. And um, but you know, I was married. I am married to a physician, another physician scientist whom you know well, David Shaywitz. And, um, you know, he was on a very similar track that I was on in terms of also being in the lab, being junior faculty, seeing patients in clinic, uh, working with Doug Melton. And, and he was starting to feel like, hey, you know, I, I think I can have more of an impact in a different arena. And so he went out and had this whole career exploration and decided he found a job at Merck in the translational sciences group that he felt was going to be really his best, greatest next step. And so I said, okay, well, it meant we would have to move um, to the New York, New Jersey area. And I thought, that's okay, I'll take my grants. I, by this time I had a K grant. Um, so I had my own funding that could travel with me. And I thought that's what I would do. But then as I was moving through that process of getting interviews set up and thinking about 
you know, pitching myself and the life ahead of me, um, I realized, number one, that um, a lot of what I really loved about my job was the work, but it was also the ecosystem and the people. And um, if, if I took myself out of that ecosystem, not that I couldn't meet new great people, but I wasn't really sure that I was excited to declare myself as this is, I'm a, you know, now K-funded, soon to be R01-funded researcher for the rest of my life. I, I just wasn't sure I had it in me to, to commit to that road. Um, and, and part of that, too, was that even though I really liked the research I was doing, I wasn't sure it was really going to be, like, the thing that cured HIV or that really necessarily, maybe it would provide insights, but it it wasn't the end all and be all. And if I wasn't doing it, would, would anyone really miss it? I'm not sure. And um, and at the same time, I was I was involved in a one of the um, experiments that I was doing was looking at paired samples, lymph nodes and, and peripheral blood from patients I mentioned with different stages of HIV. And um, I was doing a lymph node biopsy um, uh, and a, a paired blood draw of a patient with very advanced, highly resistant HIV. Um, and I had a needle stick injury and it was a high risk needle stick with a, um, you know, through needle, through open bore needle, through the glove, drawing blood. And it was really terrifying for me. Um, and because this patient had such highly resistant virus, um, I had to go on a number of um, experimental or just newly approved medications. Um, so I had compassionate use uh, to Pranavir at the time before it got approved and had like a mild hepatitis from that. I went on a injectable called T20, got a full body rash. Um, and, and, you know, I only had to be on these medications for a month. Um, uh, and, and I had to take a couple more as well, but that was fine. Um, just, you know, mild nausea and inconvenience, but, but thinking about the patients I had who had to take these medicines every day, I just realized like, there's so much more to do on the HIV therapy side. And so, you know, as I expanded my. That is really, really scary, Diana, and really, and, and really brings home the importance yeah. of developing medicines. Like if yeah. it's an abstraction when you're a researcher, now it's definitely not. Like yeah. how, how old were you when this happened? And did you have kids at that time? Well, I, I, I did. I had, um, David and I had our first child and I, um, you know, I, my first question was like, oh my gosh, I hope I'm not pregnant. And I wasn't thankfully, but, um, and then, you know, what everyone kept saying to me too was, well, thank gosh, this guy didn't have hepatitis C because then you'd be really hosed. Um, which, you know, then this foreshadowing to my, my, my next, you know, few steps ahead in my career, but, um, but it was, it was, it was, it was terrifying. Right. And I, and, and I, you knew the data on like, you get on the med and I got on the medicine right away. And my, my clinic mentor, Raj Gandhi was, you know, took, you know, he, he was in charge. I sort of ceded everything to him and, you know, there's no one I would have more confidence in as a clinician and particularly for HIV, but actually really anything, um, than, than Raj. And so I knew that the odds were, so much in my favor, but nevertheless, it was it was a sleepless month for sure. Well, so you you recovered from this hi yeah. highly resistant form yeah. of HIV, uh, and um, and you went to work at Merck, 
Yes, that's right. So I, I wound up taking a job at Merck. And and really what drew me there was that they're working on this, what was going to be the first in class HIV, new class of HIV medicines called integrase inhibitors, this drug Raltegravir, which seemed really exciting. And it was, I mean, it, the integrase inhibitors are now standard of care for HIV regimens um, and, and are so, so much better in terms of potency and tolerability. Um, and so that was that was really exciting. And and getting into Merck, um, that was the draw. But as soon as I was there, I, I felt like this is this is a great place for me. I I belong in this kind of team environment. And I really love the idea of working on such big things, things that are bigger than than what any one person could accomplish individually. You thought if this treatment were uh, to live up to the potential and win FDA approval and treat people, that's going to matter. Like yeah. my work here will have counted for something. Yes. If you like listening to The Long Run, you will love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that covers the major issues and events of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers, like David Shaywitz. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And would your organization like to raise awareness of your work with a targeted audience of 10,000 biotech leaders? Please consider a sponsorship of the Long Run Podcast. Contact my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes, at stephanie at timmermanreport.com. Okay, so you were there for a, a few years. You got a taste of how industry works, how it's different from the way things work in, in academia. Um, then you moved to the Bay Area for this job at Gilead, and it seems like your career really took off here at Gilead through a whole series of roles and, and projects. I don't know if we have time to cover them all, yeah. but what, what drew you to go work at Gilead? Well, again, it's sort of the personal at that time, um, um, David, my husband, um, had uh, taken a job out in California with Matai Mammon, who is his um, anatomy lab partner from medical school at TheraVance. And so David was commuting back and forth um, from New Jersey to California. And by then, we had three kids under five, really, maybe even under four. It was some ridiculous situation. It's not surprising I have very little, few memories. <laughs> um, but but it was just very hard on our family. And um, so, and he was loving that job. And so um, the idea was, well, is there anything I could do on the West Coast so we could be together um, as a family? And um and this job at Gilead, they um, serendipitously, they decided to move their hepatitis group, which who had been in North Carolina as a holdover from the acquisition of Triangle Pharmaceuticals to their base camp in Foster City and hire someone I had known through my work at Merck, John McCutcheson, um, who was a really big figure in hepatitis C because they really wanted to do for hepatitis C what they had done for HIV. And I had been working on hepatitis C at Merck and um, just thought it was the hottest, newest area. And at that time, when I left Merck, I had a folder for um, 
what we call direct acting antivirals or DAA cures. And I'd had two papers in it, both from Japan. And so it was really a time when no one knew if you could cure hepatitis C without interferon. And, and, um, but Gilead was sure you could, and they were going to find out and figure out how to do it. And so, um, I was really excited to, to get into that team and, and be part of, um, the group trying to sort it out. Um, so you really worked on hepatitis C from the early days, not really yeah. HIV, which Gilead was, you know, the world leader at that time and best known for. Yeah. Um, and hepatitis C was sort of something back in the pipeline that may or yeah. may not work. That's right. So I went to Gilead for a hepatitis C and then ultimately oversaw HIV, but it was, it was sort of coming back to it after uh, a number of years. Now, at the time, I remember covering this, that the, there was a generation of hep C drug developers coming up, and the, the standard of care was something like it, it would cure one-third of patients, maybe, and it was a year-long course yeah. of treatment, and there were flu-like side effects that were so intolerable, most people never even started or could barely tolerate it to all the way to the end. So it was really um, a huge disease, a huge problem going largely untreated. And you looked at this, and and did you see, like, the ultimate opportunity that 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 we now take maybe take for granted some people anyway that we're we're curing almost everybody who wants yeah. to line up and get it in six weeks. I mean, it is so incredible to, you know, in a in a lifetime. I mean, in a short period of time, like in a decade, to see a disease completely transformed. I don't know if there's ever going to be another example of of that. I mean, maybe COVID in a certain to a certain extent, right, with the rapid development of vaccines and therapies. But um the the number that I mean hepatitis C is a terrible disease. And and anyone who's treated HIV patients knows that sort of there there was this inflection point when all of a sudden you can get the HIV under control with combination therapy. And then people just started dying of hep, of their hep C because those they often so often travel together and and HIV people with HIV had even lower cure rates than average for in response to interferon and often just like really couldn't tolerate the side effects. Um, so very devastating. Um, and, uh, and now you're right. I mean, there's medicines, eight weeks, 12 weeks, almost everyone, if you're late stage disease, early stage disease, I mean, it's, it's, it's not trivial, but it's, it's totally manageable. And that's because of all of the work. I mean, Gilead led but but it wasn't only Gilead. It was many companies trying and um, efforts happening incredibly quickly um, in that race to to get a cure rate and build on you know the next thing. Like first it was telaprevir and bosepravir, and then it was all oral, and then it was better, and then you know it just kept getting better. And now and now that the world has moved on, but it's a it's an amazing amazing story. Well, you worked on those drugs that were uh, big news at the time. Yeah. So Baldi, Harvoni, uh, that raised that cure rate up over 90, 95% plus. Mm -hmm. um, and they were originally in the news because of the high price. There was controversy over that. But 10 years later, <laughs> it's come down quite a bit. And to the point where the United States government is talking about an effort to just buy as many drugs as we need to eradicate hepatitis C from our population. Um, yeah. That's quite a postscript. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it it is incredible, and I think just demonstrates the the power of science and industry to really do good in in the in the right environment. Now you um you worked your way up the ladder 
here at Gilead. What what did you d- discover about yourself as you you know you started with that really firm grounding in the basic science and an eye toward patient care uh, as as a physician scientist, now turned drug developer. Um, what, was there something about this environment that suited you, where you know you could? You could even be more effective, like leading people and working through other people. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I, I did have incredible opportunities there, and and I and Gilead was a wonderful place to to work. It was very, um, I, I like to think, meritocratic in terms of, you know, not being the leadership was not fixated on hierarchy and process, but really on like who's the person in the room that knows the most about whatever we're talking about, and let that person speak up, and or who who's you know who wants to do this, who can do this, great, go do it. And if you do it again, if you do it well, great, here's more, do that. Um, so so that was wonderful to be in a place where there were always opportunities and it was so such a lean environment in terms of people that there was always more to do um, if you're interested and willing. Um, and then I think, you know, my I, I did uh, pretty early on in my tenure at Gilead, I was, you know, struggling a little bit with all the, some different groups and someone said to me, I think you need to get a coach. And I thought, oh my God, that's so insulting. But um, then I heard from my boss, like, if you want to get a promotion, you're going to need to get a coach. So I thought, okay, I'll get a coach. And honestly, it was like one of the most transformative experiences of my life. Like I can't recommend um, having like a, a career coach or executive coach highly enough. If Really? It, what did that person do for you? She really helped me like reframe my understanding of my job. I mean, I was at a point in my career where I'd, I was had essentially been an amazing individual co- contributor, incredible capacity to do work, get things done, understand the science, do, you know, I could do a million things, but I really saw that as like, that's my job. I do my job. I do it well. That's, that's all I need to do. And she really helped me reframe and understand that being a leader is a lot more than just doing the work. It's about bringing people together. I mean, it seems so obvious and silly, but but all of that stuff that I used to think of is, well, I'm not a political person or I speak the truth. It, it's not, it, she really helped me understand like, it's that's not it. It's actually your job. You need to think of your job as like helping people see the path. If you know it's right, then that's not good enough. You have to help people understand and you have to listen to people and make sure you're right. And sometimes you need to try things a different way. And um, so she gave me a lot of personal insight, but mostly she helped me understand that my job was about so much more than just, you know, finishing the checklist of work in front of me, but, but kind of helping everybody be their best selves. And, um, uh, and I, and that really, I think helped get me to another level in terms of leadership and, and, and also job enjoyment. Like, I think actually the, the pleasure of helping teams move from, you know, a little bit chaotic and everybody, every person for him or herself to, um, a well-oiled machine. It's, it's a lot of work. And, and if you do it successfully, uh, for me, there's no better feeling. I mean, that's why I'm a CEO right now is really that love of like bringing teams together and then like letting people do their best work and, and trying to get out of the way uh, as much as possible. It's really interesting. So all of this was happening 
throughout your career at Gilead. And like, just to touch on it real briefly, you at the end, you worked on remdesivir for COVID. COVID hits, the world's looking for answers. Gilead is, you know, this leader in infectious disease. You, you had um, an idea. I mean, th- your team did uh, that you could test this. U.S. government like springs into action. Gilead springs into action. I'm sure you were working seven days a week around the clock. Um, and and even like today, as I best understand it, remdesivir is like it's still on the market. It's a uh, commonly used. It actually helps people uh, avoid severe disease and get out of the hospital sooner. The trials have now borne this out. Um, it's yeah. still being used when a lot of other treatments are not effective anymore. Um, well, <laughs> I don't think we want to talk more about that experience because it's we could talk all day about that one. But how did you feel at the end of like you got to a juncture? Did you feel exhausted? Did you feel like I'm ready for a new a new challenge? Well, I did feel. I think you know after being. Uh, involved in remdesivir. And I, I mean, it was, it's, it's hard to even describe how incredible that was like the highs and the lows, but, but after that, and I get getting approved and I, I did feel like number one, um, the, the, when I say my team, it's not even just like the people that were working for me or in my group, but the larger, the, the, you know, the antiviral group at Gilead writ large is just one of the highest functioning places to be in the world for drug development. And I, and I really did feel like I had accomplished a lot of what I had sort of mentally set out to do, which is, you know, to make myself almost not important anymore. And just in terms of building up and um, the people around me that were just so highly competent and capable. And um, so that felt good, right? Like I can, I can step away from this and, this impact is is not going to be big because all of these wonderful people are here and know what to do and know how to do it. Um, and I, and I think for me, I was looking for like, where can I go where that learning curve can be as steep as it just was doing this whole crazy remdesivir thing. The, I mean, the development piece was a very small piece of it. The government, the, the all of that other stuff was was learning so many new things on the fly, and I realized I could kind of miss that. And so looking for what can I do where I can I can have that again? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that led you to become a CEO, <laughs> Al- Alavir. What, yeah. what was the were, were recruiters calling you at this point? Like, okay, you, you're senior vice president of infectious diseases at Gilead, and you've now got a string of accomplishments. You, you look like a CEO, or how, how did this happen? Well, I mean, so I recruiters are always calling it, and I never spoke with recruiters really, but but the person that I did speak with is David Halal, who was the CEO of Alavir. And and I was on the board of Alavir because Gilead, I'd gotten to know the team um, when they were a private company and looking to raise money in their early funding and had met David and Vikas and and the um some of the other team members and really thought what they were doing with this allogeneic off-the-shelf multivirus T cell therapy was amazing because there are all these viral diseases that individually uh, may be too small to initiate a whole program, but collectively cause a huge burden of disease are somewhat neglected. I mean, I wouldn't go as far to say neglected tropical disease, but these are these are diseases that that really are devastating and yet lack therapeutic options. And they are taking approach that 
is so, um, you know, scientifically, this adoptive T cell transfer for patients without their own functioning T cells to replace that deficit has been well-established and accepted. And they were just kind of taking it to the next level. How can we make this into a drug? How can we do this in a way that that it can be broadly accessible across many different immunocompromised patients, not just those who happen to be lucky enough to get their transplant at Baylor, let's say. Um, so that's how I we you know we made at Gilead an investment. I got to know the team when they went public. I sat on the board as an independent director. Um, David was CEO of Alavir at the time, but also of Elevate, the largest investor in Alavir, and and couldn't really do both once Alavir became public, and so. Again, you know, serendipity, the timing just worked out incredibly well that it was feeling to me like I might be ready to leave Gilead and um, Alavir needed a CEO. And, and when I thought about it, I realized when he first when it first came up in conversation, I, I wasn't really thinking my next move is a CEO. I was thinking my next move is something different that I didn't know. But then I thought, like, I don't want to interview anyone for this job. Like, I don't, like, no one's going to do this job. I'm going to do this job. And, um, but this is a, now, can you talk a little bit about the company itself and what it's setting out to do? Because this seems like a pretty, um, you know, audacious new approach to cell therapy. There's, uh, the, the, there's, everybody knows about engineered T cells for cancer, uh, yes. a, lot, a lot of success there. But you're talking about, T cells that come from a universal donor that can be given that are engineered to specifically attack six different viruses that commonly pop up in immunocompromised patients of one type or another. You're going to give them these T cells and these T cells are going to constantly be on surveillance and patrol and, and killing those opportunistic viruses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so there's some things that are like totally cutting edge on what we're doing. And then some things that have been around for a couple of decades. So virus specific T cells, that idea of using T cells to target viruses has been around since I think the first publications were in the nineties, 1990s. Um, what we're doing in terms of getting a multivirus product, making it partially HLA matched using, so um, we're not genetically modified or engineered. And our donors actually come from the viruses that we're targeting are ubiquitous. Um, you know, even the six viruses, like things like Epstein-Barr virus that causes mono, cytomegalovirus. These are viruses that almost everyone acquires in childhood and they lie dormant in the body. And so we make ourselves from donors who have immunity to all of our target viruses, we get, after we make sure they don't have the things we don't want them to have and have the right immunity, if they agree to donate, we get an apheresis product from them, like a very large blood donation, and isolate those T cells, expand them with um, the parts of the, like a peptides that come from the parts of the virus that confer the best protective immunity to stimulate the T cells that will react to those peptides as well as some cytokines so that after about two weeks on the back end, what you have is a population of CD4 and CD8 virus specific T cells targeting all of our different viruses. And, and it took, you know, over 10 years for the scientific technology to, to be able to create this product to, to mature and develop and 
be robust. And our chief scientific officer, Anne Lean, has been working on virus-specific T-cells her entire career, um, starting from her postdoc. Um, but um, Okay, but so these, these are from donors. Yes. Donors. Whenever you take cells from a donor to infuse into somebody else, you have the risk of immune rejection. That's uh, right. So how do you um, uh, prevent that from happening? Yeah, it's, so that's a great question. So there, there are two things that allow our cells that are only partially HLA matched to persist in patients. Um, number one is the um, what allows T cells to proliferate and survive is recognition of cognate antigen. So each T cell is, you know, its T cell receptor is going to recognize a single epitope, a single antigen. And if it does, then and that 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 leads to a stimulatory signal, then that T cell will um, divide, multiply, proliferate, expand, and that drives survival. Okay, so that's one thing. So if you have virus around to so that the cells can recognize um, virally infected cells, that's going to drive survival. So that's an important component. Then the second thing is the patients that we're targeting are immunocompromised. And just by the very nature of the fact that they're getting these reactivations of these viruses mean that their T cells are not working normally. And so that creates space for our cells to, to survive, proliferate, expand, and you know we believe control the viral infections and and it's not forever it's it's until that window closes and that window closes when the virus goes away and there's no longer that antigenic stimulus and also when that patient's own immune um, system recovers because then they don't need our cells and so it's this really beautiful um sort of seesaw of our cells are there when you need them and they're gone and out of the body when you no longer need them. That, that's the premise. Okay. So how is this being tested in the clinic? Like you, you mentioned immunocompromised patients, but can you be a little more specific? Like what's the setting where they're being yes. applied? Yes. So the potential is very broad, but where we're starting is in stem cell transplant recipients and specifically allogeneic stem cell transplant recipients. So not auto where the cells come from your own body, but when you're receiving a donor um, from either a related donor or an unrelated donor through a donor bank. And um, those patients in particular, because of the immunosuppression they need to prevent graft-versus-host disease um, are particularly vulnerable to the infections we're targeting. And so these are often leukemia or lymphoma patients. Yeah. They're getting that, that bone marrow or that stem cell yeah. transplant. They're rebooting their whole immune system That's and they're right. vulnerable. That's this is there's a window there where yeah. those opportunistic, those, those viruses that have been hanging around in your body for your whole life, but not a problem, they can wake up and start causing a problem like Epstein-Barr virus or JC yeah. virus or cytomegalovirus, all these things suddenly crop, re crop up and rear their ugly head. You're saying we're going to come in right there with yeah. these donor T cells that are preloaded to kill those viruses. That's exactly right. And so we're replacing the defects and serving as a bridge to um, the patient's new immune system, which just needs time to fully engraft. And that high-risk window is different for every patient, but generally the first three months are the highest risk, and then the risk extends out for another three months, so about six months total. 
And it's, is it the breadth of the, the, um, the repertoire that you're bringing that you can kill like these most common six viruses that cause problems for this immunocompromised population? Is that part of what's special and, and different here? Yes, I think the multivirus targeting is unique and special and has benefits because um, one of the biggest risk factors for um, having, uh, you know, once you get one infection, that is one of the biggest risk factors for having another infection. And these patients often will present with multiple infections or they'll have a significant like adenovirus pneumonia, but then they also reactivate CMV. And if you have something that can address both of those problems at the same time, all the better. Um, and the other part is that, you know, if we have one product that can address all of these different conditions, um, that, that in a, in a way creates a, a supply chain that makes it much more accessible, right? You don't need to have six different, um, uh, manufacturing streams for different products. You have one bank of, of off the shelf cells and they can go out to these many different indications and it makes it really work from a sort of cost of goods perspective um, and, a, and a numbers perspective um, that all of a sudden these smaller indications kind of cumulatively stack up to, to kind of make sense. Well, so what kind of results have you seen thus far in your clinical trials? Yeah, so we have phase two data in a number of settings. We have uh, treatment phase two data that was generated at Baylor where the science came from for Alavir um, in patients who um, had sort of exhausted all available options. So experimental medications, off-label medications, or developed resistance to approved therapies against any of our target viruses. And um and in in that study, which was a little over 50 patients, we had over a 90% response rate. So over 90% of the patients um, who had previously sort of had tried everything and failed had a, a clinical and or virologic response to our cells. So that treatment phase two study was what enabled our two ongoing phase three treatment studies, one for hemorrhagic cystitis um, and one for adenovirus infection. Um, and then we also have a prevention phase two study, which is saying, okay, you can wait for patients to get sick, but what if you move upstream and try to prevent them from getting sick in the first place? And in that open label study, we had 26 patients who were treated sort of um, uh, about you know a month out of their transplant before they had any illness from these viruses, got seven doses of medicine covering that highest risk window period, and we looked for the development of clinically significant infections and found very low rates of these infections in these patients, suggesting this posalusal might also work in the preventative setting. And that that study supported the use, uh, the start of our phase three prevention study, which is also enrolling. Um, and then we have phase two data. It's our first placebo-controlled data in kidney transplant patients with BK virus, which is a devastating cause of graft loss and has no approved therapies. Um, and that, that data came out earlier this year and was really important because it was the first um, placebo-controlled data that we generated with posalusal. Of course, our phase threes are all placebo-controlled, but we won't see those data until um, the second half of next year. 
Um, and that study showed uh, relative to placebo that the patients that got pozolusol had um, much higher virologic responses in terms of the percentage of patients with viral load reductions, the depth of the viral load reductions over time. So we're again, it, we're, we're just looking for where's the unmet need? What are the what are the patients that need this therapy and and how can we get there? Um, and there's a lot to do. So you'll find out next year about this time um, yeah. if those phase three results, if you really have a product um, that's approvable and likely to go out there on the market and really help a lot of patients. Um, but so far, so good. What are you comparing this uh, experimental treatment to? Are, are, are there like off the shelf small molecule antivirals or, you know, individual monoclonal antibodies that can take on one or two of these um, opportunistic viruses or so of the yeah so of the what's six what's viruses, the hurdle that you need to clear yeah so for the phase 3 studies uh, that we're doing the two treatment trials in hemorrhagic cystitis and in adenovirus there's no approved therapy and so we're going against you know it's placebo controlled you know standard of care and so for hemorrhagic cystitis it's um you know like IV hydration, bladder irrigation. Some people use off-label cidofovir, either intravenously or as a bladder irrigation, even though it's not approved for that. For adenovirus, similarly, some people use cidofovir. It's never been approved. It's associated with a lot of toxicity. Um, so, you know, we're in a, like what we would call first to market indication for all of these indications because CMV is the only virus that has approved therapies. Um, people use rituximab for EBV off-label, um, but it, it's a it's a wide open space with um, so much potential and so much unmet need. It's um, And this is, I think, a really unique way. We didn't have a chance to talk about, you know, why T cells have some advantages over small molecules, like just in terms of the development of resistance and how a multi-epitope product can, can sort of um, help the, um, uh, evade the problems that are so commonly occurring with latent viruses developing resistance. Well, um, that's kind of what I was, uh, you know, T cells uh, have yeah. persistence. They do have memory um, and, and uh, can be made to recognize multiple different antigens. Um, so are th those are some of the baseline product characteristics advantages that, that you see with this modality. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're trying to do is, um, you know, immediately clear the virus um, that's causing the problem in the here and now. And then what we what we we believe ourselves can do, and we have some evidence from our kidney transplant study with the placebo arm, is that because our cells are highly functional and are directed towards the virus, they're also creating a milieu where the host immune system can learn through that CD4 help and develop its own endogenous responses in a better way. And we showed that um, in our uh, kidney transplant study that the patients who got pozolusil, not just, they didn't just have the responses to the targets and that pozolusil targets, but also the own immune system developed new responses in a way that the placebo patients didn't. And that's really- That's exciting. fascinating. That's, that's fascinating that's because- you don't need these infused cells to necessarily persist. They can sort of wake up or educate your yeah. your own pre-existing immune system that just wasn't uh, responding right. So really, it could be like a gift that keeps on giving and keeps you living healthy after you know for months or years longer after you get that first infusion. 
it's a very exciting um, potential that that um, you know we're we're hoping to see more of when we when we see our phase three trial results. Fascinating stuff, Diana Brainerd. Thanks so much. Best of luck. Thanks for joining me on the long run. Great. Thank you, Luke. Nice to speak with you. Thanks for listening to the Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.